Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Australia is the only country that's also a continent and is actually the smallest of the seven continents. Australia as a country is actually one of the biggest in the world. The British set up penal colonies in Australia in the late 1700s. Eventually, expansion led to the decline of the indigenous people, and in 1827, Great Britain had laid claim to the entire continent. Australia now is known as being one of the best places on earth for surfing, and beaches are a big part of most Australians' lives. The conditions make it ideal for trips to the beach nearly year-round. Christopher Wilder was a sexual predator from early on in his life, and with the help of his family, he managed to stay on the loose, preying on young women on two continents for more than three decades. This is Monsters. Christopher Wilder was born on March 13, 1945, in Sydney, Australia. His mother was Australian, and his father was an American naval officer, which gave him dual citizenship. His father, Coley Wilder, had joined the United States Navy when he was 19 years old. He was stationed at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, when the Japanese attacked. His assigned ship was not damaged, so soon he was on his way to the Battle of Midway in the Pacific Ocean. They continued on to the Battle of the Coral Sea, where the destroyer was damaged, which caused them to have to go to Sydney for repairs. While there, Coley met a young woman named June, and they were married a few years later. They would go on to have four sons, Chris being the oldest. After the war, Coley chose to remain in the U.S. Navy, so the family would eventually live in various cities around the U.S. and in the Philippines. When Coley retired in the 1950s, they moved back to Sydney to be closer to June's family. Chris was born premature and doctors at the time didn't expect him to live. It's been said that a priest was called in to perform last rites the night of his birth, but to the delight of his parents, the baby didn't die. He made it through the night and then the next few days, and before they knew it, they were sure that their baby boy was going to live. Later in his life, Chris would claim that he was in another near-death experience just a few years later. He was revived but slipped into a coma for a short period of time before recovering. As a child, he was caught peeping into windows in his neighborhood. At the time, authorities returned him to his parents and brushed it off as typical boyish troublemaking. Chris went to a boarding school until he was 15 years old but failed to pass his tests and left school. After that, he got an apprenticeship as a carpenter and he spent the next few years working and saving money so he could buy a car. Once he had a car, he and his buddies could cruise the highways and hit the many beaches in the area. On January 4, 1963, a summer day in Australia, Chris went by himself to Freshwater Beach where he met a couple of other boys a year younger than himself. Reports say that they met a couple of girls on the beach and began playing around with them. Suddenly, the boys dragged one of the girls, just 13 years old, to Chris's car and threw her in the back seat. They drove off with her to a secluded area where Chris told the other two boys to go away while he raped the young girl. 
When the other boys came back, they saw the girl crying in the back seat, and Chris was back in the driver's seat. They would later claim that they only thought driving off with her was a prank. On February 11th, Chris was arrested and charged with rape. The other two boys were also arrested and charged with rape, even though the girl explained that it was only Chris who sexually assaulted her. Chris also wrote a letter to the court saying that the other boys weren't involved in any physical assault on the girl. All three boys took a deal to plead guilty to the lesser charge of carnal knowledge. That appears to be the crime of having sex with someone under the age of 16. Chris's father, Coley, spoke on his behalf during his sentencing hearing and told the judge that he believed his son had learned his lesson. This would become a regular pattern for Chris's parents, doing everything they could to shelter their son from punishment throughout his life. Chris was given a one-year suspended sentence, meaning he would not see the inside of a prison cell as long as he stayed out of trouble for one year. He was also ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation, where Chris would later claim that he was given electroshock therapy, but that claim has never been substantiated. It was common practice, but his visit to the psychiatrist was only for an evaluation, and the doctor's report was fairly unremarkable, with no mention of electroshock treatment or an ailment that would justify it. The other two boys also took the plea deal and were sentenced to nine-month suspended sentences. This is most likely why there are so many claims that she was gang-raped, since the two other boys eventually did plead guilty. One of the boys would say in an interview more than 50 years later that he has lived his entire life with the guilt that he didn't stop Chris when he had the chance. On January 11, 1965, two girls went missing and their bodies were located in a shallow grave in Wanda Beach. These unsolved murders are now known as the Wanda Beach Murders and are theorized to be the work of Chris Wilder. Marianne Schmidt and her best friend, Christine Sherrock, both 15 years old, took Marianne's younger siblings to play in the sand dunes at Wanda Beach. The water was too choppy to swim in, so the kids played in the sand and listened to the radio while Marianne and Christine were lured away by a boy. Seven-year-old Wolfgang said that he saw the girls walking down the beach with a boy he thought looked like a teen surfer. To a seven-year-old, 20-year-old Chris would probably still seem like a teenager. He went to follow them, but they disappeared over a sand dune, so he changed his mind. Later, the same boy walked past him and he asked where the girls were, but the boy ignored him. When the girls hadn't returned by 5 p.m., 10-year-old Peter took it upon himself to get all of the children back home, which entailed a two-hour train ride. Once home, he told adults what had happened and the police were notified. The following day, a man was walking on the dunes with his nephews when he saw what he first thought was a mannequin buried face down in the sand. When he went over to it and brushed more sand away, he realized that it was a real body and called police. Marianne was found on her side, and Christine was face down with her head against the sole of Marianne's left foot. Marianne had her throat slit so badly that she was nearly decapitated, and she was stabbed six times. The back of Christine's skull was fractured, and she had been stabbed 14 times. Both girls had semen on them. The medical examiner said that the weapon used was likely a long, slender blade about a half-inch wide, tapering to a point with one sharp edge and one serrated edge. The police had very little evidence to go on, but they got witness statements from other young girls that had been on the beach that day. They all described being approached by a man in his early 20s who would eventually start talking vulgar and showing them pornography. The physical descriptions they gave matched Chris Wilder. They also interviewed a number of sex offenders in the area, but were never able to solve the crime. Records show that Chris was marked down as a suspect in 1969, but it seems he was never questioned. Chris's family tried to get him on the straight and narrow, and Chris himself tried to become domesticated. In 1967, he met a couple of sisters and began inviting them to go to the beach with him. He started pursuing a relationship with a younger sister who was only 15 years old, but her father put an end to that, telling Chris he was too old for her at 22. Chris then switched his focus to the older sister, who was 20. After dating for a few months, Chris took the woman to a secluded area where he took some pictures of her and then tried to force her to take her clothes off so he could photograph her nude. The incident turned the woman off to him for a few months, but she eventually went back to him. It was also reported that Chris tried to get the woman's mother to have sex with him, but she was able to get him out of her house. 
Despite the red flags, the couple were married on February 17, 1968. Most stories of Chris Wilder claim that the marriage only lasted for a week, but that isn't true. The woman, who requested to remain nameless in a later interview, claimed that the marriage was normal for a few weeks, but then Chris became demanding and aggressive when they were having sex. After a few months, she found a bunch of photos of other women, some nude and some wearing her clothes that had mysteriously gone missing. In 1968, she was driving to work when her brakes failed, and it turned out she was completely out of brake fluid. She wasn't hurt, but two weeks later, her steering went out and she ran off the road. She was again unharmed, but Chris was the one who maintained her car, and he was a good mechanic. Months later, she was in bed when she smelled gas, and when she got up to investigate, she found the gas on the stove on and all of the windows in the house were shut, which was unusual. They always had the kitchen window open. The woman left Chris two times over the course of a year, but returned both times. In November of 1968, Chris went to the beach and convinced a young woman he was a photographer. He began taking pictures of her, but eventually convinced her to take off her clothes and filmed her nude. Then, he repeatedly called her and threatened to release the nude photos if she didn't agree to meet with him. The next time she met up with him, he took her to his house while his wife was at work and raped her, again threatening to release the pictures if she said anything. Eventually, the woman's mother found out what happened and took her daughter to the police. She agreed to file a report, but she said she wouldn't testify against him. Testifying meant her entire life would become public record and she would likely be blamed for the assault. Eventually, Chris was arrested and though he admitted to taking the photos and admitted to the rape, they wouldn't charge him since the woman wouldn't testify. They released Chris, but by the time he got home, his wife was gone. She had left him for the third and final time, and she finally divorced him in February of 1969. This was the same time that the ex-wife and her mother went to the police to offer Chris as a suspect for the Wanda Beach murders. It's unclear what evidence the women gave to investigators, but they marked him as a suspect in the Wanda Beach murders file. They made a half-assed attempt to look for him, but they never went to his parents' house or his work address. On May 4, 1969, Chris Wilder left Australia and flew to the United States. He had dual citizenship, so he was welcome to live and work in the U.S. if he wanted to. He lived in southern Florida and had no problem finding work in construction. Now in a new country with a clean record, he went right back to his old habits. He cruised beaches and shopping malls, posing as a photographer looking for models. His clean record didn't last long, and he was arrested in 1971. He had successfully convinced a teenage girl at a mall to model for him, but when he also suggested that she pose nude, she turned him down and reported him to the police. Without knowing about his record in Australia, the court fined him $15 plus $10 in court costs, and Chris was back out on the streets. He spent many years in southern Florida making good money as a carpenter since the construction industry was booming in the area at the time. Then he started his own business and became very successful. He started out in a nice apartment and then bought a piece of property with a manufactured home on it. Soon he was able to sell that property and buy a beachfront home in Boynton Beach. He bought himself a Porsche 911, a speedboat, and a motorcycle. Chris actually had a steady girlfriend for about eight years in the 70s. They lived together, and she would later tell the FBI that their relationship seemed pretty normal. She said he was never violent and didn't initiate any aggressive sexual activity. It was likely because he was getting an outlet for that someplace else. She said that he worked long hours and often worked on Saturday. He would go into the office even if there wasn't any work to do, but in reality, he was using these times to stalk and assault young women. Though it seemed that Chris was trying to not make the same mistakes he had with his wife, he wasn't able to change completely. His girlfriend did find a bunch of photographs of young women on the beach. She eventually learned that he was sleeping with his bookkeeper, and after a number of other affairs were uncovered, she finally left him. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? 
Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not, because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. In 1974, Chris picked up a teenage girl by promising to make her a famous model, but instead he drugged and raped her. She went to the police and he was arrested, but he was only given probation. Chris was arrested again in 1977 when he sexually assaulted a 16-year-old girl who happened to be the daughter of one of his clients. He had noticed the girl when he was working on her house and began stalking her. He didn't use his usual photography scam to pick her up. Instead, he saw her go into a convenience store, so he parked his work truck nearby and popped the hood. When she walked by, he asked her for help and pointed out that he had worked on her house. After fiddling with the truck for a few minutes, he asked her if she could take him to her house and let him in so he could finish the repairs he was making. She agreed and got inside his truck. Instead, he took her to a deserted job site and told her to give him a hand job. When she didn't, he began slapping her around and in an effort to not be raped, the girl told him she was pregnant. That plan worked and he left the job site, but as he was driving around, he made her perform oral sex on him and then dropped her off at her boyfriend's house. He confessed to the crime and told the detective that he was down in the dumps that day. Even so, he pleaded not guilty and was somehow acquitted of the crime. On June 21, 1980, Chris picked up two 18-year-old women at a mall who were tourists from Tennessee. He was able to convince them that he was a photographer from the Barbizon School of Modeling and that he wanted to take some test shots of them. He said that he wanted to put them in a pizza advertisement and took pictures of them as they both took bites of pizza. Once he was able to separate them, he took one of the women to his truck where she began feeling weird. He would later admit to dosing the pizza with a microdot of LSD. He convinced her to take off her clothes and he raped her in his truck. When he went to find the other woman, who he most likely also wanted to rape, It turned out that she had gone to the mall security and reported that her friend had gone missing with a man claiming to be a photographer. While Chris was walking around the parking lot, looking for his next victim, the woman who he had raped stumbled out of his truck and made it into the mall where security took her to safety. When Chris returned to his truck and saw it empty, he knew the jig was up and left. They took the woman who had been assaulted to the hospital where they collected semen. There was no DNA yet, but they were able to use that semen to get a blood type. Though he had told the girls his name was David Pierce, police knew the description sounded familiar and eventually made note that Christopher Wilder was a suspect. Chris was arrested a week later, and like he had done many times before, he admitted guilt. He told a detective that he had been posing as a photographer to pick up young women, and he had sexually assaulted the woman at the mall. He told the detective that he knew he had a problem and was seeing a psychiatrist for it. He had actually seen a psychiatrist for a sex addiction, but it's not clear if he was still seeing them at the time of his arrest. He ended up pleading guilty to sexual battery and getting five years of probation. Again, Chris was back on the street. Chris took advantage of his freedom to become an active participant in the Florida racing scene. He got a track license and began racing his Porsche 911. In 1981, he also made a video for a dating service. He told the camera that he'd spent his life working long hours to build a successful contracting business, and now he wanted to spend less time at work and more time socializing. He used the typical claims of looking for a long-term relationship and how bars weren't the right place for him. He seemed to be branching out to new ways to lure in unsuspecting victims. It's also important to point out that this service was putting countless women at risk by promoting a convicted sex offender to them. It's unclear if he ever met anybody through the service. Chris went back to Australia in 1982 and stayed with his parents. He had asked the court for permission and was granted. While there, he immediately began cruising the beaches, pretending to be a photographer. 
The day after he arrived in Sydney, he approached a 16-year-old girl and successfully gave her his modeling photographer speech. She went with him to a department store where he had her try on a swimsuit. Then he tried to have her put on just a pair of pantyhose, but she refused. He drove her back to the beach where he convinced her to find him another young girl who he was able to photograph topless before she also managed to get away from him. The 16-year-old went to the police the same day and picked Chris out of a photo array. A few weeks later, Chris propositioned two 15-year-old girls on another beach and managed to get them into his car to go to a photo shoot. He took them to various places and took pictures, gradually making his way to his hotel room. He told them to strip or else he would hurt them, so they complied and he began taking nude photographs of them. He ordered the girls to remove his clothes and they did. Then he laid down on the bed and masturbated to completion before they all put their clothes back on and he dropped them back off in town. The two girls were at the beach with three boys and though they told them that they were going to do a photo shoot, the boys were suspicious. They wrote down the license plate number of Chris's car and notified police. Police had been looking for the girls and had notified their parents, so when they arrived home, they were questioned about what had happened. They initially didn't want to tell the truth because they were afraid of what Chris would do with the pictures, but eventually they broke down and told their parents what had happened. The police used the license plate to find out that the car was a rental, and the rental office said the car was rented by Christopher Wilder. The girls also described his hotel, which only matched one in the city. They found Chris at the hotel and questioned him. Like every other time he had been caught in the past, Chris admitted to what he had done, laid out the story of how he knew he had a problem and was ashamed of himself. When police asked him for the film he had used the previous night, he claimed that he had thrown it away. This was another one of Chris's favorite tactics. He would always tell police that he had thrown away evidence of the crime and the reason was because he was ashamed of what he had done. Chris was placed under arrest and booked into jail. Though the police checked his criminal record, all that came back was a juvenile charge. They did manage to find the report the other young woman had made the day after Chris arrived back in Australia. Again, though admitting to the crime, Chris pleaded not guilty in court. At his arraignment, the prosecutor wanted him held without bail because they didn't want him back out harming more teenage girls. His father, Coley, spoke on his behalf claiming that he had extensive business interests in both the U.S. and Australia, and Chris promised the judge that he would abide by the conditions of his bail. The judge set his bail at $400,000, which was a huge sum for the time. Even so, Coley put up his property as collateral for $200,000, Chris's uncle put up his house as collateral for $150,000, and Chris himself paid the last $50,000. Once again, Chris was back out on the streets. Chris was allowed to leave the country as long as he returned for his court date on August 4, 1983. Back in Florida, Chris continued racing his Porsche. He raced at Daytona, Sebring, Miami, and at Road Atlanta in Georgia. He and his team didn't make a great impression, coming in 17th in their best race. In 1983, Chris met a woman named Elizabeth Kenyon. She was a school teacher who was also aspiring to become a model and actress. Chris met her at the Miss Florida USA pageant where she was a finalist. Chris had presented phony credentials that said he was a photographer from the Australian magazine Pix. When Chris saw Beth, he was instantly smitten with her. He played up his photographer character and managed to get her to go out to dinner with him. It seemed as though Chris, on top of sexually assaulting women, also liked to have a steady relationship as well. He saw Beth as a potential long-term mate and started whining and dining her. While Chris was wanting a serious relationship, Beth didn't see him as boyfriend material. She enjoyed his friendship, but that was all. This is why, when Chris proposed to her after only a few months, she politely declined. The two remained friends, and in early 1984, Chris offered her a modeling job at a Miami Grand Prix race he was competing in. She declined because she had other plans. She was going to be out of town, visiting her old hometown in New York State. While courting Beth, Chris was still hunting other young girls, and his actions were getting more and more erratic. He was suspected of murdering young girls previously, but the cases were never positively connected to him. 
On top of the Wanda Beach murders, he was suspected of murdering 17-year-old Mary Opitz, who went missing from a mall parking lot in Fort Myers on January 16, 1981, but her body was never found. 18-year-old Mary Hare went missing from the same parking lot on February 11, 1981, and her body was found in June. She had been stabbed in the back and dumped just outside of Fort Myers. In 1982, the remains of two separate bodies were located near the property Chris had owned before he moved to his beachfront home. The bodies had both been there for different amounts of time, both within the time that Chris had lived nearby. On June 27, 1983, Sherry Lynn Ball told her mother she was going to meet a friend in Boynton Beach and they were going to New York to pursue a modeling career. A few days later, Sherry called her boyfriend from Ashland, Virginia, and told him that she and a friend were on their way to New York, but she didn't say who the friend was. Sherry was never seen again. Her remains were discovered by a hunter in Shelby, New York, in October of 1983, but they weren't identified until 2014. These are some of the other murders that Chris is suspected of committing but it's impossible to estimate the scope in which he may have sexually assaulted and killed young women. At the end of July of 1983, Chris returned to Australia for his court date. It was a two-day hearing to hear evidence so a judge could make a decision about a trial. They weren't able to get through all of the witness testimony, so the process was delayed and another court date was set for April 3, 1984. Since Chris had returned for this court date, he was allowed to continue his bail. His lawyer had tried to get some of the testimony thrown out, which would increase Chris's chance of not going to trial, but the judge allowed everything. Chris's likelihood that he was going to go to prison was high, and he knew it. When Chris got back to the United States, he booked a round-trip flight back to Australia for his next court date. Though the trip was planned and paid for, Chris would never set foot on Australian soil again. On February 26, 1984, Chris competed as a solo driver in the Miami Grand Prix. The event was packed with 75,000 spectators, including many scantily clad young women. Chris made the rounds, offering a modeling position in a Budweiser commercial to young women, and eventually received interest from a young woman named Rosario Gonzalez. Rosario was working for a sponsor company passing out samples when Chris approached her with a modeling offer and she was last seen leaving with him around lunchtime. When she didn't return to work that afternoon, her co-workers were concerned but they didn't notify authorities or her parents. It wasn't until she didn't show up back home that evening that her parents called the police and reported her missing. Though her employer put up a $25,000 reward and her parents added another $5,000, Rosario was never seen again. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market. Support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22. Or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. On March 8, 1984, Beth Kenyon was seen at a gas station in Coral Gables. The attendant would later tell investigators that he was talking to Beth as he pumped her gas, and a man walked up and said they were in a hurry and told him to stop talking. When they showed him a picture of Chris, he said it was the same guy. The attendant said that the couple were talking about needing to get to the airport, and she asked the man if she looked okay. Her car was eventually located at the Miami airport, but Beth was never seen again.
Beth's parents hired a team of very good private investigators, a father-son team that were a retired cop from New York and a retired FBI assistant director. They set their sights on Chris, and though he tried to evade them, they showed up at his construction office and laid into him. Chris denied being the person who was with Beth at the gas station the last time she was seen, but they said they were going to bring the attendant to him so he could confirm whether it was him or not. They also talked about getting the detective handling the Rosario Gonzalez case involved. The private investigators were closing in on him, and when he went back to Australia, he was surely going to be sent to prison. If that wasn't enough, on March 16th, a reporter had written a story in the Miami Herald linking the cases of Rosario Gonzalez and Beth Kenyon to a Porsche-driving resident of Boynton Beach. The walls around Chris were closing in, and the pressure sent him into a frenzy. Either Chris was attacking young women more frequently, or he was getting sloppy, but his known violence began to increase. On March 15th, 15-year-old Colleen Osborne went missing from Daytona Beach. Her mother didn't report her missing right away because Colleen had a history of running away for a few days, but when she hadn't come home by the 19th, she finally filed a report. When police talked to her friends, one of them said she had been offered $100 to do some modeling by a guy who matched Chris's description. Police would later learn that Chris had stayed in a nearby motel the night before Colleen's disappearance. Her body was discovered on April 6th in a wooded area near Lake Buena Vista, about 75 miles or 120 kilometers away. It was initially thought that the body wasn't Colleen's because an x-ray didn't match a broken arm she had had in the past, but a DNA match confirmed it was her in 2011. On March 18th, Chris had taken his dogs to a boarding house, he shut down his business and collected whatever money he could. He left his Porsche and his Cadillac Eldorado and took a company-owned Chrysler New Yorker and headed north. This was also the day that Chris saw 21-year-old Teresa Ferguson at Merritt Square Mall and convinced her that he was a photographer. Her stepfather, a local police officer, found her car in the mall parking lot at about 10.30 at night. He waited there until midnight, but she never returned. Once detectives began investigating the disappearance, they found a tow truck company who said they had gotten a call from a man who said his car was stuck in the sand in a remote area known as Lover's Lane. When the tow truck arrived, they were met by Chris and assisted him in getting the Chrysler out of the sandy earth. The tow truck operator said he thought it was weird that Chris was alone. He paid for the service with a company credit card. On March 21st, Teresa's body was located in a creek in Haines City, about 85 miles or 136 kilometers from where she went missing. On March 20th, Chris was hunting for victims at the Governor's Square Mall in Tallahassee when he approached 19-year-old Linda Grober. He told her he was a photographer and asked her if she wanted to do some modeling. Unlike many other young, beautiful women, Linda had no interest in modeling. Chris left her alone, but must have kept watching her because he approached her again and was more persistent about having her model. She told him that she had two roommates that might be interested, and after he gave her his business card, she called her house but didn't get an answer. Chris left again, but was still watching her, and as she went to get into her car, he approached her a third time in the parking lot. Now Linda was starting to grow concerned with this man who wouldn't leave her alone. When she turned him down yet again, he punched her hard in the stomach, which knocked her out. When she woke up, she was in the backseat of his car and he had pulled into a wooded area. He pulled her out of the car and began tying her up. She said she begged for her life, even telling him that her father was wealthy and she could write him a check for a million dollars. Chris wasn't interested in money. It's estimated that he was worth about two million dollars in 1984. No, Chris wasn't after money. He was looking for power. He just wanted women who he could easily overpower to make himself feel superior. Chris put Linda into the trunk of the car and drove for 10 to 12 hours. At one point, Chris stopped the car, popped the trunk, and began choking Linda, just to show he was serious. Then he continued driving around. They ended up in Bainbridge, Georgia, which was only about an hour away from Tallahassee, so Chris must have drove around to either confuse Linda or maybe he just didn't know where he wanted to go. He eventually found a small motel and rented a room. He was able to pull right up to the door and carry Linda into the room without being seen. Inside, Chris stripped off Linda's clothes and then removed all of his clothes besides his underwear. Then he sat on the bed and watched television. 
Linda reported that Chris sexually assaulted her three times over the course of when he was watching TV. Finally, Chris decided to move on to the next part of his plan. He superglued Linda's eyes shut and connected an electrical cord to her fingers and toes and began electrocuting her. He told her that he would shock her for 10 seconds at a time, but if she screamed, it would be 30 seconds. He also told her that if she didn't cooperate, he would have a group of men come in and rape her and then send her to South America. Chris stopped electrocuting Linda and told her that he wanted to shave her. It was at that point Linda said she decided she was either going to get away or die trying. Fortunately, one of her eyes wasn't glued completely shut and she was able to not only see Chris, but the front door. She jumped up and began fighting with everything she had. She tried to make it to the door but wasn't able to unlock it fast enough. Chris got a hold of the hair dryer and hit Linda on the head with it, hard. She could feel that her head was bleeding, so she used the opportunity to pretend like he had knocked her out. As soon as his guard was down, she jammed her fingers into his eyes as hard as she could. As he recoiled in pain, she made it to the bathroom and locked the door. Then she started screaming at the top of her lungs. Chris started pounding on the door and threatening her, but he quickly knew the noise would get him caught and he fled. She waited in the bathroom for about 30 minutes before risking coming out. To her relief, Chris was gone, but he had also taken all of her belongings. She wrapped a sheet around herself and went to the front office where the attendant reluctantly let her in. At the hospital, her eyes were treated and she was fortunate not to suffer any lasting physical damage from either the superglue or the electrical shock. She had survived an encounter with Chris Wilder and lived to tell. When Chris took Linda across state lines into Georgia, he officially made himself a federal fugitive. The FBI arrived in Bainbridge and it would kick off one of the largest FBI manhunts in history. Authorities were able to track him with the credit card he was using, but in the 80s, it wasn't instant. It would take a couple of days before the credit card info would reach the FBI, so they knew where he had been, but not where he was going. On March 21st, Chris approached Terry Walden at a mall near Beaumont, Texas. She turned him down, but he continued stalking her. On March 23rd, Chris had followed Terry to Lamar University, where she was going to school for nursing. As she left the school, he kidnapped her and left in her car. Three days later, her body was found in a nearby irrigation canal. She had been beaten and stabbed in the chest. The stab wounds were so severe that the knife had gone all the way through her body and come out her back. The FBI found Chris's abandoned New Yorker, and in the trunk they found fibers that linked him to Teresa Ferguson. On March 25th, 21-year-old Suzanne Logan went missing from the Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. When she didn't return home that night, her husband called the police and reported her missing, but they shrugged off the disappearance, suggesting that she had just left him. Chris took Suzanne to a motel in Newton, Kansas, where it's unknown exactly what he did to her. The following morning, he stabbed her to death and dumped her body in a reservoir near Junction City. A fisherman found her body later that day. An autopsy revealed that Suzanne had been sexually assaulted, she had been beaten, and there were bite marks on both of her breasts. There were six or seven small puncture marks at her spine and the small of her back, which are believed to be the result of torture. Her pubic hair had been shaved off, and the medical examiner determined her time of death was only about an hour before her body was discovered. Chris spent the next few days driving around. He made it to Colorado, where he cruised around Denver before going to Aurora and purchasing a Colt Trooper revolver. The state at the time required no background check for a handgun, so Chris paid cash and immediately had a gun. On March 29th, 18-year-old Cheryl Bonaventura was on her way to meet a friend and the two were going to take a trip to Aspen. She made a stop at the Mesa Mall in Grand Junction, Colorado. Chris must have approached her outside the mall and told her he could make her a model, offering to take her to Las Vegas and make her famous because it seemed that she went with him willingly. Cheryl's close friend said they both wanted to be models and dreamed of being noticed in public so she wouldn't be surprised if she'd gone with him. The pair were together when Chris checked into a motel in Durango, and the next day, a waitress said that they came in for lunch and that Cheryl was excited that they were going to Las Vegas. The next day, they stayed in a motel in Page, Arizona, where Chris likely tortured the young woman. Her body was discovered on May 3rd in a remote area north of Kanab, Utah. 
She had been shot once and stabbed multiple times. Once he reached Las Vegas, Chris stayed in a motel, and though there was no evidence that he had a victim that night, the house cleaner was in for a surprise in the morning. When she went into the room, she found a tan bra, a pair of underwear, pantyhose, a black slip, a blow-up doll, and a dildo. It was the first time evidence showed that Chris may have shared the company of an inflatable date. The presence of the women's garments weren't a sign that he had live company that night, as he was known to take souvenirs with him after he sexually assaulted and killed women. He was most likely reliving an act with a previous victim. On April 1st, a modeling competition for Seventeen magazine was being held at Meadows Mall in Las Vegas. This was the perfect event for Chris to find his next victim. We know he was there because a photographer captured him sitting by the catwalk. Witnesses saw him talking to 17-year-old Michelle Korfman, one of the competitors, after the event was over. They said she eventually left with him, most likely believing she was finally getting her big break into modeling. Chris most likely tied her up and put her in the trunk of his car as he drove from Las Vegas into California. Her body was located in the Angeles National Forest, just northeast of Los Angeles, on May 11th. An autopsy revealed that she had died of asphyxia due to aspiration of foreign matter. It seemed that Chris had pushed her face into the dirt until she inhaled some of the soil and suffocated. Then he just left her laying there and continued on to Los Angeles. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Lomita is a suburb in the elbow of Los Angeles that little chunk of land in Los Angeles County that sticks out between Redondo Beach and Long Beach. He stayed in a seedy motel on April 3rd, and the following morning he headed to the Delamo Fashion Center in Torrance to hunt for another victim. Though he was close to the beach, which was his original hunting grounds, it seemed that Chris had now settled on the mall as the perfect place to find young girls who wanted to become models. It didn't take him long to find what he was looking for with 16-year-old Tina Marie Risico. Tina had taken the bus from school to the mall to apply for a job. When she was approached by Chris, he told her that he represented the John Powers Modeling School, and he offered to take some test shots of her. He gave her $100 and told her that, if the shoot went okay, she'd have to get her parents' approval to move forward. It sounds like he told young girls that he would need to talk to their parents often, and it's probably to get them to put their guard down. If someone was going to do something bad, they wouldn't want to talk to their parents. He told her he could drive by the modeling school before he went to take photos, and they did. He drove her by the John Powell Modeling School before heading to Huntington Beach. He must have spent the day before scouting locations and setting up his story. At the beach, Chris asked Tina to remove her top and bra and put on a white jacket he had brought with him, and she did. After a while, he told her he wanted to get some shots in the mountains, and the two drove into Trabuco Canyon, which is east of Huntington Beach. Once in a secluded area, they both got out of the car, and as Tina was getting ready to take more pictures, Chris pulled a gun on her. He looked directly in her eyes and told her he had killed before and wouldn't hesitate to kill her, too. Then he shoved the barrel of the gun into her mouth and cocked it. When he removed the gun from her mouth, he held it to the side of her head and then pulled a knife out of one of his boots and dragged it along her skin from her chin down to her stomach. 
They got back into the car where Chris made Tina remove her clothes and sit on top of him so he could rape her. Then he tied her up and put her in the backseat of the car. That night, Chris checked into a motel in El Centro, California and raped Tina again. He pulled out an electrical cord and connected one lead to her toe and then used the other to touch various parts of her body. He touched her neck, her chest, her stomach, every time sending a jolt of electricity through her body. He told her that this would be her punishment if she didn't do everything that he told her. Like Linda, he threatened that she would be given to other men who would rape her if she didn't comply. The next day, they continued driving, at one point stopping at a diner so Chris could eat. He ordered her to stay in the car, and she did, out of fear. That night, they stayed in another motel where the rape and electrocution continued. The same night, Chris saw a report about himself on the news, and they published a mugshot where he had a beard. Chris went into the bathroom and shaved his beard in order to alter his appearance. If there was any doubt in Tina's mind that Chris was serious about having killed before, it was gone now. The news report also made Chris reconsider going back to Los Angeles, so he immediately took his hostage and started heading for New York. They stayed at a motel in Prescott, Arizona, where Tina was raped again, but not tortured. Christopher Wilder was added to the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list on April 5, 1984. The FBI began a media blitz to ensure everyone knew who Chris was. They held a press conference where they detailed his exact method of kidnapping. They made flyers available to missing persons departments, police offices, mall security offices, motels and hotels, modeling agencies, high schools, and colleges. They tried to plaster his face everywhere, but unfortunately they focused on states west of the Mississippi. In 1984, news also traveled pretty slow. They didn't have cell phones with text messaging and social media. They didn't have the internet and streaming television broadcasting news 24-7. They didn't even find out that Tina was a possible victim until April 10th. By that time, Chris would already have traveled across most of the country and was ready to take another victim. After leaving Prescott, Chris had Tina drive since authorities most likely weren't looking for a young girl driving a car with a clean-shaven middle-aged man as a passenger. In Arkansas, he had Tina pull into a parking garage and stole license plates from another car to put on the car stolen from Terry Walden. They drove northeast through the country, and when they arrived in Indiana, Chris told Tina to go to a mall in Merrillville. Chris had told Tina that he would let her go as soon as he had another quote-unquote driver. He had her go into the mall and help him secure a new victim. When he pointed out the girl he wanted her to bring to him, she told him that she didn't know what to say. He told her, quote, Do it, succeed, or I'll shoot you dead in the mall. End quote. It wasn't quite the motivational speech that most people would want to hear, and Tina remained unsure. Chris gave in and approached 16-year-old Donette Wilt and told her the same thing he had told Tina. She would make a good model and that he would need to talk to her parents since she was underage. The presence of Tina with him probably disarmed her further. Tina said that she wanted to warn the girl, but she knew that Chris had his gun on him and was too scared. Once they got to the car, Chris didn't even try to pretend that they were going to take pictures. He pulled out his gun and forced her into the back seat. With Donette tied up in the back seat and Tina driving, they made it almost through Ohio before stopping at a motel in Akron. Once in the motel room, Chris had Tina take a shower while he raped and tortured Donette. Chris's desire to inflict pain was increased, and during his electrocution, he inserted the wire into her vagina. Chris made Tina sleep on one of the beds while he slept on the other bed with Donette, raping her repeatedly throughout the night. Donette had also claimed to be pregnant in an attempt to get Chris to not rape her, but this time it didn't work. It seemed that it might have made things worse. He would call her his little mommy, and while he was electrocuting her, he said he hoped he was hurting her baby. The next morning, Chris raped and electrocuted Donette again before he watched the news. He saw that the FBI was still thousands of miles behind him, and they were finally talking about Tina's disappearance. Then Chris took a shower, shaved, and they left the motel. In the car, Chris forced Donette to take some sleeping pills, then they drove east into New York and stopped near Penyan, an area between Rochester and Syracuse. In a wooded area, Chris dragged Donette out of the car and into the woods. He raped the teenager one more time and then attempted to strangle her, but she was able to fight back. 
Then he took out his knife and stabbed her once in the back of the neck and twice in the chest. As he walked away, Donette used all of her strength to yell, quote, I hate you, I hope you die, end quote, to which Chris responded, quote, Shut up, bitch, end quote. Tina waited in the car for Chris while he was in the woods with Donette. When he got back into the car, they drove toward Penyan, but he made her pull over because he said he wanted to drive. He turned around and went back to the woods, probably nervous since he wasn't sure if Donette had actually died. He got out of the car, and after a few minutes, he got back into the car and told Tina that Donette was gone. He drove north, telling Tina that they needed to find a different vehicle. Donette was able to get the duct tape off of her eyes and untie her wrists. Then she used her pants to wrap around her chest to slow the bleeding. She stumbled through the woods toward a sliver of light that she could see in the trees. As she exited the forest, she saw a man named Charles Larson driving by in a truck. He pulled over, and once he saw that the young woman had been stabbed, he took her to Soldiers and Sailors Hospital in Penyan. She was rushed into emergency surgery and managed to survive the attack. She told authorities that she thought Chris was going to try to go to Canada. 33-year-old Beth Dodge had left work in the middle of the day and went to get lunch at Eastview Mall in Victor, New York, closer to Rochester. Chris was headed into the same mall parking lot when he saw Beth's gold Pontiac Firebird pulling in as well. He followed her as she parked and got out with his revolver in his hand. He told Tina to hop over to the driver's seat of that car, and she did as Chris approached Beth as she was getting out of her Firebird. He pointed the gun at her and forced her into the back seat of her own car then motioned to Tina to follow him and drove Beth's car out of the parking lot. He drove around until he found a road with no traffic where he pulled over and took Beth into a wooded area. He made her get on her knees and shot her in the back, killing her. An autopsy would reveal that she was shot at close range with a three fifty seven round that went through her heart and exited through her breast. Chris got back in the Firebird and had Tina follow him to a nearby bar where they transferred his belongings into the new car. Then they continued east on I-90. Someone had seen Chris in the woods on the side of the road and police found Beth pretty quickly. They knew her death was at the hands of Chris and they immediately went on the assumption that he had taken her vehicle, which was soon confirmed. Authorities were finally closing in on him and Chris knew it, but it was making him more dangerous. For some reason, Chris never considered killing Tina. He seemed to have developed an attachment to her that made him let her live. Maybe it was the ultimate power move, saying, See, I can let you live if I choose to. It's unknown, but Chris eventually made it to Boston, Massachusetts, where he bought a plane ticket from the Logan Airport to Los Angeles. After that, he had Tina walk with him back to the parking lot, where he gave her some cash, kissed her, and said a sentimental goodbye. After he drove off, Tina went into the airport, bought some french fries, and waited for her plane. When she got into Los Angeles, she took a cab to a clothing store where she bought new clothes, then went to her boyfriend's house where she showered and put on clean clothes. Then she had her boyfriend drive her to the police station. People wonder why she didn't go to the police right away at the Logan Airport or why she followed him in a separate car instead of driving away. She was mentally and physically tortured, and like the case of Colleen Stan, unless you've also experienced that exact same trauma, you can't know what she should have done. She did exactly what she thought she should have done in order to survive, and she did. Just north of Boston, Chris pulled a gun on 19-year-old Carol Hilbert, but she ran, so he got back into his car and continued heading toward Canada, and he nearly made it. On April 13th, Chris pulled into a service station in Colebrook, New Hampshire, just 10 miles or 16 kilometers south of the Canadian border. He walked into the service station office and asked for directions to cross into Canada and about what type of paperwork he might need. Back then, it was more than likely he just needed a valid ID, such as a driver's license, but the attendant told him he might need an insurance card to prove that he was covered in the event that he needed medical care. Chris was walking back toward the Gold Firebird when two police officers drove by the station in an unmarked patrol car. They didn't know anything about Chris Wilder, but it was obvious that he was focused on them, which made them suspicious. They pulled into the service station, and Chris knew they were cops, so he tried to jump in the passenger side of the car, but the door was locked. 
He raced around the back of the car and tried to jump into the driver's seat, but Detective Chuck Jellison ran from the patrol car and grabbed him, suspecting that he was trying to flee. Chris managed to get a hold of his revolver as Detective Jellison, who was bigger than him, was bear-hugging him from behind, keeping his arms to his sides. Chris managed to get the gun up to his chest and pull the trigger. The bullet entered Chris's chest and exited his back, then entered Jellison's abdomen. The detective retreated around the back of the Firebird, where he heard a second shot. Chris had fired two bullets into his chest, killing himself. The other officer in the car was a brand new patrol officer who had just started training. Quite an initiation. As help arrived, Detective Jellison was taken to the hospital where he made a full recovery. The bullet had stopped before his liver and didn't do any major damage. Other authorities realized that the shooter was the current FBI's most wanted fugitive and the media began storming into the tiny town. Christopher Wilder's autopsy revealed that he had died of a gunshot wound through the heart, with both bullets traveling through the same wound tract. It's possible that the first bullet killed him and the weight of his body on top of the gun caused another bullet to be fired. The medical examiner couldn't say whether the death was suicide or accidental, but many people believed that he intended to kill himself since he had mentioned to multiple people that he'd rather die than be arrested. Inside the trunk of the Firebird, they found a briefcase that contained the electrical cord, duct tape, and other kidnapping and torture paraphernalia. The death of Chris Wilder meant that his reign of terror was over, but it left the families of many missing women with no answers. It also made it impossible to know exactly how many young women had been sexually assaulted or killed by the monster who terrorized countries on two continents. Raping, torturing, and killing women across the entire United States due to a sadistic urge for power over women that started when he was just a kid. A compulsion that was never identified by authorities despite being caught multiple times and due to parents who refused to allow their son to be punished. Authorities in the U.S. continued trying to locate some of the missing women who were likely victims of Chris Wilder, but there's been no success. Authorities in Australia eventually tried to match DNA found on the Wanda Beach victims to Chris, but it was revealed in 2014 that the DNA evidence had been lost. We will likely never get answers. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. 
No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in store and online at arnott's.ie. Oh, look at that pocket mirror. Cute. No, that's a Samsung Galaxy Z Flip 4. Wait, it was so tiny, but it just unfolded into a full-size phone. Wow. She's only gone and popped it on the side and took a selfie. Totally hands-free. Nice. Would you look at her now? She's watching a movie while getting her hair done. I'm well, gel. Flexible design for any situation with the Galaxy Z Flip 4. A serious flex.